Hello? I'm Martin Landau. I'm Barbara Bain. The new Space 1999 is more exciting than ever. We have Catherine Schell as Maya, the Wonder Woman of science fiction. And lots more. Don't miss the exciting new season of Space 1999. I think it's I think it's your turn to take us in. Uh, Just uh, pretend like you're hosting a show. That's all we're doing anyway, is pretending like we're hosting a show. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alright, uh Hi everybody. Welcome to the Escape Pod. Uh, I'm Nathan. And I'm Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well. I'm glad we sorted out all of our endless stream of technical difficulties, it seems. Neither of us are very good Escape Pod operators. Yeah, that's that's how we ended up in this thing in the first place. They don't train you to be in an Escape Pod this long. No, certainly not. Certainly not. Systems are breaking down left and right. Yeah. That weird guy who said his job was to fill the toilet paper rolls. I haven't seen him. I'm a person. He's still around. Maybe he's in the duct work. Maybe we're due to encounter some other escape pods floating around in space and we can pick a better one. Oh, that sounds like a nice idea. Yeah. We can find some kind of um, uh, universal docking collar and hook up with an alien escape pod and take that over. Yeah. Just have to watch out for weird wind and lights. Right. <laughs> Why do you bring that up? Huh. Funny you should ask, Nathan. Today, in the Escape Pod, we're going to talk about Space 1999, Season 1, Episode 8. This episode is called Dragon's Domain. Do you have... I mean, you kind of... You picked this episode. I did, yeah. Do you have a, a relationship with the series? Well, my relationship with the series, yeah, I do, but I didn't pick this because of that. I always wanted to watch more Space 1999. I watched it originally because I encountered it when I was going to Star Trek conventions. And actually, I pulled out a box of paraphernalia just last week to see. Tell me more. Yeah, to see when I was going. And so I found several pins. When you'd register and you'd go in, you would get a pin that you could put on. And they were in Denver and there was Starfest and Starcon. There was two a year. The earliest pin I had was from 1988. Wow. So I don't know if that was the first one or... At least I was going that early, so I would have been... Uh, 12? 13? 12 or 13. Uh-huh. I remember, you know, so the Arctic, uh, these conventions, there would be a big floor of, of vendors, and yeah, there would always be people selling bootleg VHS tapes, and I would... <laughs> I remember seeing, you know, when you're there, I would see all these Space 1999 paraphernalia, like the posters and the models and the headshots and uh, maybe occasionally you'd see somebody wearing the space 1999 uniform oh really wow yeah like most those, people were did they have giant sweeping bell bottoms on them I, yeah i guess they must have damn um and so i so you you were space 1999 curious right i was yeah <laughs> and then, yeah you know and in the back corner you had to go through a special door mm-hmm to, to find the Space 1999 VHS tapes. And 
Yeah. Nice. I remember buying a couple and uh, loving it because the the sets are these super identifiable, like white furniture. Yeah. So many CRTs, analog clocks. Uh huh. So many keyboards and printouts and like typewriters and clipboards and this weird mix of 70s technology and computer futurism. Yeah. Pretty serious, like 70s take on a future that's not that far away. Yeah. From the 70s. A mere 20 years. I still want the future to look like that. Like, that's what I want my house to look like. Like, I know we could do even better now. We know that we could have flat panel screens and, you know, we don't need to have those, whatever those comm locks that they carry around with the TV screens in them. Like, we have cell phones that are way better, but I'd much rather have a comm lock and an analog clock and <laughs> a, a printer built into my wall. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I think uh, the first couple of scenes of this episode really uh, treat us to some of that. Should we jump right in? I just want to say that's how I knew about Space 1999, but picking oh, yeah. this episode was a real quick Google search as to like, does Space 1999 have a iconic episode? You know, is there oh, a- Oh, I see. Is there an inner light or something? And so who knows based <laughs> uh-huh. on what authority I found, but I found several mentions that this dragon's domain was- one of the most loved episodes, but who knows? Are you ready to go into the app? I am. All right. Let's go in. I guess I'll begin with, I very have very vague memories of this from just seeing it in syndication a little bit as a very, very small child. So right. I know next to nothing. We had one of the ships that we played with that I'm pretty sure we inherited from like an older cousin or something. So it was just something that we stuck our G.I. Joes and Star Wars guys in. See, I didn't know any of the backstory for this. Should we just cover that real quick for Sure, let's listeners? cover it real quick. We'll do a little exposition. Great idea. So in 1999, there's a moon base Alpha, which is on the moon. and That makes sense. For some reason, the moon um, is forced out of the orbit of the Earth and shot off into space. And so... It's because... That the Earth stored all of its nuclear waste on the quote-unquote dark side of the moon. Wow. There was an accident, and that exploded and ended up being a rocket booster. Right. That shot the moon into space. Right. And not just, like, into the solar system, but they're going at, like... Well, this... Yeah, this confused me because right... The opening scene is the Doctor... Who's, uh, you excitedly text me about how she was typing away at an actual typewriter. Yeah. And Barbara I, Bain. Yeah. And it's awesome. And she's filling out a medical report on one of the officers. And in it, she says, we're in our 800th and something day of drifting in free space between galaxies. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. wait a minute. Okay. Wait a minute. What the fuck is going yeah. on here? First of all, I mean, grasp the fact that this is our moon. That's traveling like this, but sure, why not? It can be a spaceship. I love this concept, but I was just like, wow, wait, how did you get out of the galaxy? A little bit of digging. It turns out that after they left Earth's orbit, they like went through a black hole uh-huh. and they went through some time warps or wormholes or whatever they called them. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, they definitely explain why they're so far away. I was reading a little bit up on it, trying to understand what the hell is going on. 
And at the time, Isaac, Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov. He's like, if that happened, it would just push the moon directly into the Earth. Like, from the way they told the story. It's like, okay, Isaac, I mean, you do know this is a science fiction story, right? He's never taken any liberties. No, no, no never. Wouldn't dream of it. Wow, you really got it out for Isaac. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Asimov! I think it's pronounced Asimov. Oh, right. My bad. Okay. Asimov! There we go. All right. Um, so the whole concept is they're just helplessly adrift on the moon, and they're basically searching for, hopefully, a, I don't know, a new place to live? What I like about this concept is that they, they have the moon, so whatever resources they had on the moon, like, they have... Yeah, they don't seem overly concerned about their resources. Yeah, but if you got the whole moon and, you know, the, the moon base alphas on there and however many ships it had, they can kind of, they don't have to even answer what that is. Like, they just have an endless supply of ships. Like, right. There was a lot and to start like with. 800 plus people living on this base. Yeah. So they're okay gene pool wise, I guess. <laughs> well, there's no children. I did, I did notice that. Not yet. This is early. This is season one of a just two season days. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's some some buns in the oven at this point. <laughs> That's true. Um, one more thing it made me think of about this. What the fuck happened to the Earth once the moon left the orbit? Yeah. What ecological disaster was wrought from this, this catastrophe? Right. Uninterrogated in this narrative. Yeah. One thing we do know, I do know about that is that there's a long-term consequence. Oh, yeah? The angular momentum of the earth and the moon are, are combined and shared and conserved within that sort of that two-body system. What that does is that stabilizes uh, the rotational axis of the earth. Mm. So the inclination of the earth, which is what gives us seasons, right? If the, if the earth wasn't inclined with respect to the sun, there would be no seasons. We wouldn't have seasons. Right. And so we have a slight tilt to it. And Mars has no large moons. It has two wimpy little moons that don't do anything. The inclination as it orbits the sun changes on large timescales, like, I don't know, 40,000 years, possibly, or I'm just guessing. But on these timescales where it's going in and out of having extreme winters to no winters, hmm. and the Earth doesn't do that. We have a fairly stable uh, axis right. of rotation. Part of the, so. the secret of our success, you might say. That's right. All right. Well, I think we've said uh, we, we've got that covered. Yeah. We we're coming into an exterior of Moonbase Alpha, and it kind of looks like one of these contemporary um, beer and taco shop places that's all made of shipping containers. Do you notice that? Yeah. I, did, I didn't make that comparison, uh, but I, I can see it now. Yeah. It's very hip. It's, it's very yeah. hot right now. And we zoom in. And as we said, the, the doctor, whose name is what? Well, it's Barbara Bain. Barbara Bain, the, the actress. actress. Russell. And, Dr. Uh, Russell. H Helena. Helena, Dr. Helena Russell is kind of narrating, she's kind of murder she wrote us. It was the 877th day since our moon left Earth. 
We were between galaxies, drifting through empty space. Do they do that every every episode, I wonder? I don't know. I I want to find out, though. Yeah, I do, too. So this is clearly like her medical log. Mm-hmm. And she's filling out a form. And she's talking about how it all started when um, this main character of this episode, the character's name is Tony Chaluli. Am I getting that right? <laughs> Tony Chaluli. That's Tony Cellini. It's a very Italian sounding name. His accent is clearly not Italian. No, no, it's like it's like Eastern European, right? Yeah, like really heavy. Yeah, and this was very confusing to me. But but the artist's first name is Gianni. You think Gianni could pull off a Tony? You could. Well, you know, I mean, if we want to get if we want to get right to it about the starring actor here, yeah, his acting name is Gianni Garco. It's just made for a billboard. Yeah. But he was born Giovanni Garkovich. Oh, there you go. But he was actually born in Italy, but now lives in Croatia. And Garkovich leads us to believe that he was actually a Croatian. But his, yeah, his Eastern, you know, we consider an Eastern Bloc accent is really awesome. So we, we gathered that, I've gathered that he is... Well, there's a lot of reasons to gather this. He's not a regular cast member. Right. <laughs> but I didn't know that, right? No, neither, nor did I. Yeah, right. For all I know, he was the, uh, one of the yeah, people that were just on the team. And so this is all about him facing a demon from the past. And we, we cut to Tony in his very spacious, uh, apartment on space station alpha and he's having a real real night terror yeah we get a star trek alien an energy being is floating around like a bunch of swirly lights he's chasing it with a hatchet yeah he he wakes up and he's quite distressed he's trying to chase these lights around and this guy has like a lieutenant Worf level of weapons yeah, right. Every surface of his apartment is covered in some kind of gun or sword or mace or hatchet. Yeah, or, and there's specifically ancient weapons. Yeah, it's almost like, yeah, it's like Lieutenant Worf slash Captain Kirk in the movies. But he's got spears, got all kinds of shit. And he's real sweaty, and he's and he, so he grabs a hatchet off the wall and starts swinging it at these lights to the point where... The lights disappear and he like just chops right into one of his well, like wall computers or whatever. Yeah. And it sticks in there and he looks like really, he looks really worried about it for a second. Well, electrocution. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's possible. And he probably is like really relieved that he didn't go into the CRT monitor that was like, you know, six inches above because. Oh, yeah. Those things decompress and there's just glass. Big boom. Yeah. Everywhere. In your eyes. Fun. Mouth. And this is like the, this is the cold open to the show. And uh, a good one. And it goes right into these insane opening credits. Yeah. That I love, actually. They they do, like, it breaks in. It's a little bit orchestral, but then it breaks into, like, super funky, groovy music. It's really fucking great. 
Yeah, it's really nice. And they they do a quick like, you know, flashes on the screen like this episode, and it does a montage of scenes from the episode we're about to watch. And they do apparently. I was like, this is crazy, and I looked into it, and they do that for in the first season. They do that for every episode. They do a montage of the episode you're about to see. Yeah, that was the style of the time. It was so cool. I always thought that those sequences in opening credits were just like bits from all like the season. So, I mean, some shows do, do that. I right. think later in the eighties, they did that, but like, I know Dallas, oh, really? late seventies and early eighties did Give it. Give a little heads up. Yeah. Rockford files, which is the same era would do like, here's what's coming up. Uh huh. I don't know who decided that that was a good idea and why they stuck with it for so long, but it was pretty cool. I kind of liked it, but nobody does it anymore. So no, no, no. I didn't know what I was seeing at the time. I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of crazy shit that happens in this show. But it turns out it was just this show. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Really jam-packed. Uh, so we come back from opening credits, and the doctor, Dr. Russell, like gets a fax from one of her computers. And we realize that it's the computer like monitors everyone's vitals on the station, and she got like a like a heads up that that Captain Tony's uh, heart rate was dangerously elevated. So she calls him up, right? Yeah. So she calls him. He's like, no, no, I just had a bad dream. Right. All right. No worries. And then we, I think we cut right away to where Martin Landau and one of his officers is hanging out playing like checkers chess. I was going to go on Etsy and see if somebody's like 3d printed this. Yeah. It's just like chess set. Like, Two different colors, and I guess they have the images of the pieces. On yeah, it's them. like tiles. Right. Okay. Everything in this world is so like minimal, and I I think that's the thing about Space Nineteen Ninety Nine that just I love is that the design. Dude, I'm totally with you. Like these one, these sets are incredible. Yeah. It's it's mid century modern taken to the next logical conclusion. Yeah, I kept wanting to say mid century modern, but I don't totally know what that means so i didn't want to come across as a dumbass well you're not you're not wrong it's that taken to like a more minimalist yeah level and more i i guess space age i thought my kitchen would look like this when i grew up or something you know maybe not every room but no i think you're right i think we kind of there was something about this spartan minimalism that was just in the ethos at the time yeah. But this is where we were going. I did not see stainless steel and granite no. taking over. I thought it was going to be... No. Or rustic... white... Rustic uh, metal. Yeah. Rustic metal. Oh, like, yeah. I just mean like, yeah. Brick and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they, they spared no expense on these sets, for sure. They look amazing. And it's interesting that this is a... Like, these shows are British production... I didn't know that. Yeah, they're British production. And I'll tell you later why I got curious about that. But, um, you know, like Doctor Who is being shot at the same time right now, you know. Right. And it looks nothing like this. Yeah. <laughs> this was the most, this was literally the most expensive production that for a series that BBC ever did. The aliens in this episode, there's like maybe a, dis- a connection to Doctor Who. Sure, sure. But, but they still do better. They do. It is better for sure. The the operative that um the captain's playing chess with whoops his ass and uh they get a little alarm situation, right? 
somebody's doing something they're not supposed to do or some unauthorized access. Yeah, unauthorized access, and and Captain Tony is uh, wandering around in his pajamas. I guess he wants to he wants to hijack a shuttlecraft, right? And a security guy comes and. Well, Barton Landau is like immediately like shut it down. Oh yeah, he's like kill his access. Right, he turns off his little doodad that opens and closes doors. Yeah, so it turns out that everybody carries these things that I don't think they make reference to it in this episode, but they're called com locks, and I guess that's because they're communicators and like remote control garage door openers. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah, exactly. They open all the doors. So every door they gotta like do a little ray gun. And open the door. So, yeah, so Martin Landau says, you know, turn that off. You know, it's nice to see an s- intelligent system that works where you can, like, lock people out. Yeah, he's got, they got control. Yeah. For just these scenarios or anything can go wrong. It's a moon base. I mean, you know. It right? seemed like a lot of security. Like, after 800 days, you might have just sort of been like. You think they may be more chummy at this point? Relax. Yeah. Relax protocol a little bit. Landau's not having that shit. He's still, uh. In charge. And he seems like a pretty chill boss. Yeah, for sure. But some kind of security type dude is kind of like, hey, Tony, what are you doing? And Tony turns right around and belts him in, like, the liver. Tony? What you doing? Sleepwalking. Yeah, some of the worst pulled punches I've ever seen. (laughs) Really? I really liked it. (laughs) It's, he doesn't even get, he doesn't even go halfway. Like, he's... His punch is, like, closer to him than it is to the other guy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair. He takes that guy out, and he gets into the cockpit of... Well, he steals that guy's garage door opener. Right, he swaps it out. Right, he's got his garage door opener now. And he gets into this, the command module, or whatever, of this... They call them the Eagles. These ships are called Eagles. And the cockpit is amazing. Like... yeah. And this is when I started being like, wait a minute, this has got real like 2001 vibes. There's the lighting in there, but also like, like we've seen in, in like silent running movies of this era, but of course, like a lot of banks of keyboards and yeah, and monitors. And the effects guy was one of the effects guys from 2001. Really? Yeah. Who worked on this. And that explains kind of the high and tight look of this thing. Cool. Yeah. It's great. The seat moves back and forward in a really it does have a really smooth way right yeah now that i think about it like all of space 1999 has it looks like it's in that universe yeah it does and it's kind of crazy to think that 2001 was 10 years earlier 10 years earlier and supposed to take place two years after this (laughs) so it kind of it makes sense in a way (laughs) if this is the same universe but um the other thing that I saw that I liked was they had a lot more sort of the levers. Oh, yeah. Right. Like flap and attitude controls and things. I think in a lot of sci-fi, you don't see that. You see knobs that you can turn and buttons you can push. Yeah. Yeah. So Martin Landell, who is the commander of this base and the whole operation, gets wind of this situation. And he runs down there and gets an override, computer override to abort the mission. And Tony, like this guy's in a state and he, uh, you know, he jumps back out of the command module and tries to grab one of their cool, weird little pistols. But Martin Landau gets one first and fucking stuns him. 
What did you think about these these guns? I guess I didn't think anything of them. I don't really remember that part. It's kind of like the handle of a of a a hose handle. <laughs> you know, it like fits just right around your It's like looks like they look like brass knuckles kind of. Oh, with, that's but right. But with a handle on them. Yeah, I do I do remember these now that you mention it. Kind of cool. Yeah. Yes, these are actually these are pretty classic. So I remember seeing these at like Star Trek conventions. Like you could buy oh, really? the, the the toy gun. It's cool that this show made such an impression. Well, I don't know. You know, you're like 13 years old, and this is back when going to a Star Trek convention was in no way acceptable <laughs> by the majority of society. So True. you had to be pretty committed. And just to give you an idea of how committed I was, I was actually not the first one I went to. I wasn't going to because I was wanted to go to a Star Trek convention. I went because. At the Star Trek convention, they had panel discussions on computers and bulletin board systems. Oh, man. So I was actually going to go to the like the BBS talks. So, <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So I was, you know. You're wonderful. I was, You're wonderful, I was, I was, Nathan. I was there I all day, that. every day, and looking at all the toys over and over, not talking to anybody because I didn't know anybody. <laughs> So cool. Yeah, very really cool. Is. I felt yeah, I felt pretty cool. You know, at this point in life, that's really cool. <laughs> well, you know, I I'll I gotta say, at the same that same time when you're doing that, I went to a couple Doctor Who conventions. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know those existed. <laughs> oh yes. They did well, and do, I'm sure. And that was like at the very low point of Doctor Who. We had a, um, maybe it was right before that. I think that the fifth Doctor was still rocking. So maybe it was a few years before that age-wise. Who was like a hip modern Doctor for the era, or trying to be. Yeah, I guess the I don't The guy who replaced really Tom remember. Baker. Who would be yeah. like, like the guy with the scarf, you know, who everyone yeah, yeah. adored and adores, and, and I still do. Yeah, Tom Baker is the only one that I ever even knew. I think anytime I watched Doctor Who on PBS, it was on PBS where I, where I lived. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's the only way we saw it as Americans. Yeah, it was always Doc- It was always Tom Baker. Yeah, he was the most popular. There was like a newer, hipper guy, and I liked him a lot. And uh, yeah, went, but it was the same exact thing as you described. There was, it was basically like a bunch of dingy weirdos with boxes and boxes of comic books and odd things. It was like an inside flea market. Yeah. It was fucking cool. I'll say that yeah. now. I loved it. No regrets here. Yeah, say that more confidently. Back to the back to the story. So he did, he didn't make it off the ship yet. He didn't. Uh, Landau stuns him, and so they're back in medical bay. Right. And uh, so the commander Martin Landau and his then wife, actress Bane, who's playing right. Doctor Russell. But on the show, they're not married. No, but they seem to be. They seem to be intimate. Yeah. No matter you know, you know whatever. That's cool. You guys are stranded. It's going to be relationships. Yeah. Command structure is going to break down. It's okay. Yeah, but still, it's 
it's you know it's always a little tense to have like, it's a little work, ten- work relationship. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, Barbara Barbara Bain was forty five, which I think is great. There was a sci fi movie that came out recently where like the dude was like the actor who played the husband was like forty five, and the woman who played the wife was like twenty five. Oh sure, right, okay. It's yeah. just so lame. Yeah, it is super lame. I really like seeing Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. I don't know. I guess knowing that they were like really married is interesting too, but they were like just adults. They were not. Right. And, and, you know, like in, in reality, you know, whatever works works, but we rarely ever see age adjacent relationships like we're describing here in contemporary on screen romances. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, it's like, and also she's gorgeous. Yeah. She looks great. He looks, they all, everyone in this, he looks, looks great. great I got to say, That's true. everybody looks great in this. Um, so Tony's getting treated for like a stun at point blank range. You know, Landau's like, well, what the hell is going on here? And they kind of, they kind of get into it because they start talking about this adventure in the past. And she thinks that Tony is haunted by it and that he's a, a repressed hysteric. Yeah. And it comes out that she was part of the medical personnel that were like, yeah, we just kind of think he's crazy and we don't believe his crazy story. He's unstable, John. He's an individualist. I've never really understood your admiration for him. Helena, he's not a coward, nor is he emotionally disturbed. And Landell, he kind of flies off the handle. He's like, we don't really have the facts, and they kind of get in a little fight over that. And... This is when I start to realize, oh, this character is someone we've not seen before on the show because they, they're writing in a backstory for him. But they really do a great job with this. Yeah. And I think that's another thing. Like, this show has the, the benefit of having, like, the moon base alpha. They're on the moon, and it's this large group. I guess, you know, Star Trek could do this, too, where they just... Right, there's a thousand people on the Enterprise D, right? Yeah, they just suddenly bring somebody in who then, you know, they're you know, not going to necessarily deal with again, but yeah, they immediately go into a flashback and now we're what they said, like six years prior. Yeah. It's like 1993 or something. Yeah. And the smartest British speaking person around them uh, has mathematically figured out that there's a, another planet in our solar system. Right. I guess Pluto is still a planet at that point. So a 10th planet. Yeah. But way beyond Pluto. Way out there. And they call it Ultra. Right. They're going to put together an expedition. Space News. Dateline, September 3rd, 1996. Brought to you from Houston, planet Earth. The Ultra Probe. Who will command the ship? This is how close the Martin Landell character are. And the uh, Giovanni Grigorkovich. I... Definitely messed that up. Gargokov, I think it's Gargokovich character. Uh, they're like the best of buds. And so they actually just like flip for it to see who's like literally flip for it to see who's going to command the probe. Landau loses. Tony wins. Right. There seems to be no real regret there. No, they're so that's the thing. They're so close. They're just like, well, one of us has to control from here. One of us has to pilot. We're both the best guys. And uh, also, a little sidebar here. The first, it's the first time we see one of these jackets that they wear. The, the scientist is wearing this blue 
Like the puffy jackets? Yeah, the blue, like, 70s puffy, like, winter jacket. Yeah. He must have been hot as fuck in that thing. Under all those bright lights. Yeah, but yeah. It looks so okay. good. They did look great. And then they all kind of walk out together, right? Arm in arm, like, hands or uh, arms around their shoulders. Yeah, they're all excited about the future. And we move right into, okay, we took everyone to the, the interplanetary space station. They get on their on their way to their voyage and it's very much just like they introduce you to the crew there's like four other people and they just show nice scenes of them you know it was an uneventful voyage for eight months we get some really nice spaceships flying i think the models are really nice they look great oh and this is another moment where i was like because it's just like classical music playing and it's it's actually actual classical music i I can't i didn't i couldn't place the tune but it was familiar so it was, again, very 2001. So the tune's really interesting. Um, I did. I don't remember the name of the tune or who wrote it, but it's this piece of music that has a little bit of controversy around it because mm. it's like a 20th century music scholar. The music is credited to, like I think, like somebody in the 1600s or 1700s. That's what it sounded like. But it turned out that it was actually written by this music scholar. Oh, in the 20th century who had found some notes from some 1700s or 1600s <laughs> composer and then like basically turned this like these little like ideas into a full thing that's amazing but all, but never but then like never admitted it like just said that it was this other person's thing that's my understanding wow i had been drinking when i read about it actually to be honest i didn't read about it <laughs> sarah told me about it <laughs> Oh, I see. So when you get too drunk to to uh, do your escape pod job, your your wife is picking up the slack for you. I was too drunk to pay attention to everything she was saying while the episode was happening. Aha! <laughs> she was doing the research live, live tweeting her research, basically. Oh, well done, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah. So that's that's fantastic. Wow. For days, excitement mounted as progressive readings confirmed the planet's condition was similar to Earth's. As they go around the back of Ultra, where they're planning to do a manned mission, of course, they lose contact because the planet is in the way. So from the Dr. Russell's Murder, She Wrote narration... This is where Earth control has no idea of what's actually happening. Yeah. So they're in the dark. And this is what this is all about. And they immediately start getting some contacts on the radar, I guess. Yeah. They find that there's a bunch of ships floating around. Yeah, a bunch of crazy alien ships. It's like a a floating cluster junkyard. Yeah. Super cool looking. It's great. I mean, one of the one of the officers makes a remark that, oh, maybe there's a space conference and this is their car park. See, it's filmed in Britain. <laughs> oh, because of the car park? <laughs> I thought maybe that was just an East Coast That thing. was my first clue. No, no one calls it that. I did think that it was odd how casual they were kind of being about it. Like they're, they very ex- started... they're very excited. Fantastic. Where have they come from? What are they doing? If you were an, ath- an astronaut and you were on a ship going to like Pluto, 
and then you get there and you find that there's a whole bunch of starships. Right. You'd not... be losing your fucking mind. Totally. And they're, yeah, maybe they're just professionals. They're, they're excited, but they're like, oh, wow. All right, but let's check it out. They're not getting any life readings of any kind. And this is confusing. They're like, well, where is everybody? Uh, there, there's a sci-fi magazine that used to exist like back in the 50s, maybe 40s, called Amazing Stories, I think. Like the TV show. Yeah, I, I could have the wrong name for it. I have some anthologies of it. And one of my favorite stories out of all of that is the story where these Earth people are in a spaceship in the solar system, and they find this cluster of spaceships that have all gathered together. And the reason is because there's this one spot in the solar system where there's no gravity. Now, of course, this doesn't really exist, and but back in the 40s or 50s, you know, you could get away with this sort of story. Like more zero gravity than just the kind of zero gravity you experience in interstellar space? Like, basically, the idea is that if your ship ran out of gas and just sort of floated indefinitely, that you might find yourself in this spot, and then the gravitational pull of the ships brought them together to make... They would all sort of crash together. Well, that's kind of it. That's very interesting, yeah. Then once your ship crashed, everybody that was on this little planet of crashed ships would like attack you and take all your resources because that is a they were all stranded. Really cool idea. Yeah, I love it because it it corresponds to what this episode is saying. Also, even though there's another element to it from all like navigational aspects, nautically it's like a sargasso or doldrums. Right. Exactly. Nothing is moving, and these things are just hanging together. I thought that's where it was going to go, but it, it doesn't quite go there. But Not it reminded cool. me of that cool story. Totally. And was that a, was that comic book or was it? No, prose? it was just a yeah, just prose, just cool. a short story. Really neat though. Great idea. Just really curious about it. Accessing disk IO error. So, uh, Captain Tony decides they're going to dock with one of these derelict ships. Um, and they have no trouble creating a perfect dock with this sh- alien ship. I, this, these are the things that I just love, you know? I mean, it's like, what does even the airlock port look like? Right. You know, but we got it. We have a perfect seal with our universal docking collar. There it is. I think you need to like think that maybe they use like inflatable Kevlar carbon fiber. That makes sense. Sure. There's got to be some way to do it. Mm-hmm. Because everybody does it. I've yet to see a sci-fi movie <laughs> where they want to do this and they can't do it. It's clearly a, a solved technology. It's like there's got to be a way. Nobody wonders like why they can keep time. We're just cavemen. So they hook up with this ship. They have a perfect seal. And they're like, oh, well, the atmosphere is, is exactly what we like. Yeah. Cool. This is weirder and weirder, but they're like, great, let's go check it out. Yeah. And (laughs) they, they open these doors and everything is going ape shit. And Tony's in the control, in the control module. And he's like trying to get a report. And the, the one scientist guy is like, there's a bunch of... Wind, noise, light. It's pretty weird. 
That might be my favorite line of the entire episode. Yeah, I have that in quotes too. I just say <laughs> they dock and then in quotes, it's pretty weird. Oh man, it's great. So what we see is a crazy tentacle beast. Yeah, there's just tentacles. Yeah, really bright eye, or what we take as an eye. And it's also like, it's screaming. Right, but I think the very first thing we see is that same light effect that we saw on Moonbase Alpha at the very beginning. Oh, right, the swirling Star Trek lights. Right, like that sort of shoots onto the ship. Right, and we come to understand that this is kind of a like the a hypno toad. Yeah, that the beast does. They try to close the doors on it, but the the crazy beast has kind of got its face in there, jamming the doors up. Right? Yeah, it's incessantly screaming. This sound is fucking crazy. There's a total lunar eclipse at four a.m. Did you know that tonight? Yeah, and it's a full moon. Yeah, I think it has to be a full moon. Oh, yeah, right. That's how that yeah. works. We'll cut that part out. Are you going to go out and see it? Yeah, I think I'm going to set an alarm. That might be fun. I might do that, too. I'm usually up at 5.30 or 4.30, so what's four? Get up a little earlier. Yeah. Yeah. You can leave that in there if you want. It's kind of fun. I don't know about the time exactly, but... I'll check it out on my moon app. I have a moon app. Here's what I love about this app. It gives you all these different designations that you're going to love that you probably already know about. But let's say like um, night end is at 3.45 a.m. Nautical dawn is at 4.20 today. All right, bro. Dawn is at 4.54. The blue hour ends at 5.05. That's crazy. Sunrise starts at 5.21. Sunrise ends at 5.24 and the golden hour ends at 5.57. And then it goes in reverse from noon. I, I fucking love this. But there's also like aviation. Dot. Oh, I don't have that on this. Yeah, there's like aviation sunset and aviation sunrise or whatever. I guess there's got to be if you're way up there in the sky, right? Yeah. Neat. Anyway, where the hell were we? Tentacle Beast. We have this like car wash monster blocking the doorway, like a rude son of a bitch. (laughs) And no one else can get their fucking vehicle in there. Tony's like hanging out in the cockpit. He's keeping his distance. He's like, you guys got this covered. They take some pot shots with their horseshoe guns. Yeah. Doesn't do shit to this thing. Nothing at all. And then it throws the blinky light sort of in the direction of the the astrophysicist, right? And then he just sort of like willingly goes into... totally like predator hypnotizes him. Yeah, and so then he kind of gets sucked in. Like, he's resisting a little, but not much. Well, it it seems like it gets their minds enough to stop what they're doing and, like, walk, take a couple steps towards it, and then they're just, like, sucked towards it. Then they're immediately back to themselves again, like, just in horror. Yeah. And resisting. He didn't want to go in, but he got sucked into the car. And then he very quickly gets spit out again as sort of a desiccated... Charred corpse. 
Yeah. It's crazy. And he gets all the other crew members. Yeah. One by one. Tony is now taking the situation more seriously. Yeah, he was like reprogramming shit because he's trying to fuck with the doors and stuff. Yeah. So he comes out just in time <laughs> to see the last one. He sort of gets, you know, the blinky blinky hypnotism thing, but manages to get back into the cockpit. The tentacles are, you know, he's trying to shut the doors on the tentacles. The tentacles are trying to get him. And he like hatchets them. Yeah, he picks up a, like a fire axe and he starts... And like clearly every time one of these actors is given a hatchet and told to like whack at mm. the props, like yeah. they are also told to not actually break anything. These are expensive. These are expensive it's, foam it's the, rubber tentacles that are actually probably made out of like bike tire tubes or something. And you might also like miss and hit like the wall or you know one of our yeah. one of the other props like a keyboard or something so that like these Not are the connecting. most these are the most tentative jabs with a hatchet I've ever seen anybody take. Yeah, he's not trying that hard. I didn't think Tony was going to be the gentle type, but he is. But he gets out, the doors get closed for whatever reason. He figures that part out, yeah. I don't remember it cuz it clearly couldn't have been the hatchet, but the doors close and he jettisons the cockpit capsule command module yeah and he goes back to earth yeah we get a couple a brief montage of his six month journey back to earth i don't know why it took two months less maybe because the position of the planets (laughs) that's generous of you well you know trying trying to get into the spirit of the thing he grows a beard augusta was watching this with me and oh she noticed that his hair didn't really grow oh yeah did get a beard and they found him and... Nobody believed his story. It's become a big scandal. Yeah, they thought he fucked up the, the airlock and then tried to cover it up. The I guess evidently this thing has a black box recorder, just like a normal jetliner. It doesn't have any cameras anywhere, but... Right, there's no evidence on the black box that they... They don't, they don't know that these spaceships existed. They don't know that this alien was there. All they know is that as soon as the airlock was opened, the black box recorder got kind of fucked up. And then when the airlock, like then when the command module jettisoned, the black box was fine again. So they think he killed everybody and then tampered with the black box, which makes sense. And so he, when he's recovering in the hospital, our own Dr. Russell is one of the people that that comes to interview him. That's Helena, right? Helena Russell. Yeah. Dr. Russell. You're being so formal, but everybody on the show called her Helena. That's, that's true. I feel like I don't know her now. This is only my first episode. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Give me a couple more. All right. Um, he's a hostile. Oh, yeah. When she comes to visit, to talk to him, because he, and rightly so, already knows. He knows that no one is disposed to believe him at this point. The green-eyed monster from outer space is firmly established in childhood fantasy, like Father Christmas. How can they possibly believe? And this is my favorite scene in the episode, because this is when I feel like this actor kills it. He dominates this scene entirely and she's like well you know basically she she accuses of not being a rational man now that is a somewhat surprising statement for a rational man i'm not a rational man yeah like everything i've experienced is nothing that i can understand so i'm trying to explain it to you and he says you've got to abandon reason i just love this i think he sells it yeah so good I, i agree completely and i think it was really well written yeah, the writing they, was great. They did a really nice job of, they just showed us what happened. 
So we know what happened. We right, know we're in on it. But they made it plausible that he was crazy. What right. we saw could be true, but it could have also corrupted him in some way. Like I think if you you felt like he was being completely wronged, like he went through this experience and nobody believes him, you would be fully on his side. But I felt like I wasn't 100% fully on his side because it had driven him to the point of being somewhat insane or or have mad. He had this sort of madness from it. I want all of you to throw out the criteria by which you judge what's real. You've got to abandon reason. That made it so much easier for me to understand why. Sure. Why Helena was having a hard time believing him. And also why Landau continues to stand by him, even though he's super crazy. That made that really dynamic. It's really cool. It's a really cool setup. I'm with you. It was well written enough that it's like, who is telling the truth here? Or not who's telling the truth, but what did actually happen? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure either. I, I got to tell you also that I got real uh, Yodawarski vibes from him. The castle. Open the mouth. Uh, the shift came in the tongue. Uh. <laughs> the way yeah. he was acting so passionately. Right. He calls it a dragon. You have to believe the tie, Tony Cellini. have stood face to face with the dragon. That was an interesting touch. So that didn't go over well with the doc. No. Hence, she wrote her report. Um, Basically, it's a really long flashback, but the whole point is they're just showing that Tony, he had this experience. Everybody doubted him. Right. They took it to the highest level. Well, that's the scene I want to talk about a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, then we won't skip it. The, the next scene is they walk. I mean, you've seen old James Bond, right? They walk into M's office. <laughs> oh, yeah. With the like, bookshelves. There is the red leather door and they walk into, yeah, to a wood paneled room with bookshelves, but it's the red leather door. This is the moment when I was really like, wait a minute, where was this filmed? And that's when I looked it up and found out that it was a British production. And if so this is, is it really the same office? I couldn't find out, but... It looks to be for <laughs> that's for, awesome. It's the same red patent leather soundproof door. <laughs> that's and great. Walk in this wood paneled room with bookshelves and the paintings are different, of course. It's it's crazy. It's I mean it's it's striking because it's so clearly not the space nineteen ninety nine set. There's right, nothing science fiction y about it. No. But exactly. it actually makes it it makes it very believable because yeah, it's great contrast. Maybe we haven't even said it, but this is the office for like the person who's in charge of the space program. Exactly. And they're there to argue their case about the future of their space program. And he's he's basically like, you know how hard this is, and we are dealing with this giant public debacle. You've had my report. Oh, the whole world's had your report. That's my problem. What are we going to do? And it's kind of all your asses are on the line here. Oh, oh, by the way, that blue like 70s winter jacket I mentioned oh, earlier, yeah. the Tony and Martin Landau are wearing the orange version. Right. I need that goddamn jacket. So the director here says without any margin for misinterpretation that afraid i'm gonna have 
discredit Captain Cellini here. Mm-hmm. And all of you are also going down with him. I very much regret it, but I shall have to relieve you all of your posts. Yeah, surprise, surprise. You're all removed from your posts. And he says the very political or very astutely as a politician, she also is, is the, the reality, reality of space adventuring, adventuring is, is that, that it's, it's terribly, terribly expensive. expensive. Yeah. And like, you guys fucked up, you're done. They got that right. Yeah. That's his job. So somehow then we jump back to a really quick reprisal of the show's premise that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. And somehow these were all the dudes that were just working at Alpha Base on the moon when shit went berserk. That's why we're there. That's why we're all there now. Yeah. Like, they don't, they don't really, they spare us the whole like redemption story. Yeah. How they got their posts back. Yeah. Yeah. This is just up to you to figure that one out. And I gotta say, I love Martin Landau. Yeah. He's a great actor. Yeah. I, I uh, man, they all wear those sweeping bell bottoms. It's nuts. They're more bell bottomy than I think the bell bottoms at the time. Yeah. Well, they took them to the, they just extrapolated to the future. Like if. Right. You get more, more fabric. I mean, if 20 years ago they were. A slight flare. Right. And then, and then 10 years ago, there's this much. And now there's this much. In 1999, it's going to be like. Like drapes, man. Yeah. <laughs> like hoop skirts around your feet. There's a lot of scenes of like someone like scurrying or fast walking down a corridor. And the bass, and I just want to hear the sound. There's no sound. Yeah, right. <laughs> we hear the. Yeah. Maybe this is a good moment to to talk more about these costumes on Alpha Base. I was just going to bring up the fact that, like, I love the the one arm. It's, it's color so thing. Great. I think a lot of sci-fi, especially in the '70s and in the '80s, they would basically say, "We're going to hire a costume person." They'd be like. Do, I guess do something futuristic and the costume person would basically pick weird materials and do right. some sort of asymmetric or bizarro cut, ill-fitting cut that nobody would wear now because like no the reason nobody has designed this thing that you just designed <laughs> is because it's terrible. Like nobody would wear it. Right, but this but has got to be a uniform. Yeah, but this Space 1999 stuff, it's simple, it's different. They even have like this weird sort of stitching pattern that's unnecessary it's not part of the construction it's just very simple ge- geometric stitching pattern oh i didn't notice that it feels like it must be at least star trek inspired like it's kind of a mock turtleneck yeah that's true moving right along this has all been memory for the viewer at this point and they're in the medical bay again after the initial stunning of him, Tony. You know, he wakes up. They're talking about, you know, like, what the hell happened? And then Landau's called to the bridge. At first, they're like, yeah, we see we see these signals. Although they don't call them signals. What do they call them? Contacts. Right. They call them contacts. And it's the graveyard. 
Oh, and it's exactly, it seems like it's exactly the same graveyard. Yeah, it's exactly the same graveyard, except they see the Ultra Probe. That's the thing, right. It's the spaceship that Tony was commanding. Right, that proves it, because they're skeptical. And the, right. the scientist guy's like, what are the odds? Like, how could this be the same thing? And then, right, they see the Ultra Probe. So there's a little bit of discussion about how could this be here? They're nowhere near the solar system. They kind of smooth that over somehow. Um, yeah, that's just, that's fucking weird. Well, they're like, we're here. Why couldn't it be here? Oh, like, that explains everything. Yeah, like it was closer to here than we were, right? I mean. Bah, <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was further away from Earth, so it didn't have to go as far to get here as we did. So here it is. And uh, Tony comes into the command room and he sees it. And He looks fucking good, by the way. Yeah. He comes in, he's all cleaned up. I feel like this actor did a great job of like looking like really haggard and crazy at different points. But now like his hair is all slicked back and he looks like he's ready for action. He looks like the guy that we're told that Landau believes that he is. Helena makes a comment about this where she's like, he seems like... Too cold. Well, we'll get to that. I guess the thing is... Uh... They plan a mission to go check this thing out. And I'm thinking in my brain, you people are fucking crazy. Right. What the fuck? For one thing, it's insane that the same group of spaceships is here. Uh, So at this point, you should pretty much believe Tony's story. Landau had said something to that effect. He'd been like, I guess this validates everything you said. Right. So why would you just throw a bunch more crew people at it? Right. I thought that was crazy. Yeah, I agree. But they do. And so... And they include him and the crew, and Helena's on the crew, Landau's on the crew. And then uh, we get Tony and this other crew member. The guy he knocked out earlier. He bops him over the head again. Right after apologizing. Alan, I'm sorry for what I did. Bonk. Right. Pretty great. And then he decides to drag him out of the... Bad move. The cockpit, and then now Landau and Helena are aware. He basically like throws them back out into the conference room where they're all hanging out. Yeah, but anyway, he goes back in the cockpit and takes off, leaving the cargo container behind. And Helena is like, gives Landau a look, and Landau says, "You think he's going to go destroy the evidence?" Yep. She's like, "Yep, that's what I think." Sorry, John, but it's my enemy. Anyway, Lando's like, we're going to follow him, gets another eagle to come pick them up, and now there's this pursuit. Yeah, they're six minutes behind. Yeah. And I love that, like, everything is, like, timed out in this. It's pretty cool. Like, I, I really felt that the tension was really successfully done in this show. For me, anyway. I do have uh, a note that w- when they're in that cargo container, did you notice the illuminated Tupperware shelf? Damn it, no. It's just like a whole display of, you know, backlit, empty Tupperware containers. Crap, I gotta find this. Yeah. I wanna see this. You mean after he blasts off and leaves them behind? It's at some point when they're like waiting to get picked up or they're in, it's when they're in that middle module. I'm excited to see that. I'll keep my eye out for it. When I let you, when it, when it comes up, I'll let you know. So yeah, Tony blasts off and leaves them behind. And they call right. for another carrier. And the poor security guy, Alan, is like, what's this guy got against me? 
Right. Yeah, so Tony is ahead of them, and he docks with the Ultra Probe. Yeah. He's returning to the scene of the crime, or in his case, the scene of the disaster. He opens the door, and to the left, there's a a Mm. shelf full of weird instruments. (laughs) He gets a kitchen knife, an axe, a rope. I think there's a grappling hook rope there also. There is a grappling hook, which he doesn't Doesn't grab. Doesn't come into use. They kind of linger on it, too. No, no, he does use the grappling hook. Oh, he does. Oh, no, the grappling hook's very important later on. I was confused by that. But what he knows that we don't is that this this alien, because he's been, he he watched people get killed by it, and he dealt with it once, is that energy weapons are kind of no good against it. Yeah, he knows that. Oh, I see the Tupperware shelf. Yeah. What do you think? Awesome. That's a lot of space to, dedicated to like six pieces of Tupperware, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I, it's inconceivable what that could be for. <laughs> Sandwiches, perhaps. But the they like, all look. They all look empty. It's like, yeah, everybody, get on, get on the ship, <laughs> grab your Tupperware container, <laughs> put your sandwiches in it. There's something here I want to interject with. When the crew is catching up, they're looking at the, you know, this cluster of ships. And Landell asks the professor basically for his analysis. And he's like, he's like, really, the best I can come up with is flies caught in a spider's web. Right. Yeah. Which is great because that's, I was already there. Like, I was already thinking that. This whole situation is obviously this. It's never explained, of course, but my imagination is like, this is some kind of vast interstellar beast that is captures all these ships just like a spider yeah it was there it was hanging in the air anyway so he tony connects with the probe and he goes in and it's like we get a real like haunted ship scene you know everything's dark on the old ultra probe i thought the feelings were there like he's re-entering this space where this crazy insane trauma happened where all of his crew members got killed you know, it's very like, I don't know, regular one, Wrath of Khan, or like the movie that I always call The Singularity, even though that's not what it's called. Goosebumps. Someday I'm going to get that right. It's called uh, Event Horizon. Oh. You know, when you get to, you know, an alien's like that too, when you get to like a haunted, empty space. Yeah. Like the black hole. Like the black hole, totally. I, I love this trope. And we're already in a ship graveyard. Right. And then he's going into his old ship where all his crew members got killed and all the lights are off. And he's like, am I going to find, you know, what I think I'm going to find, what I'm here to find? Sure enough. Yeah, there it is. A lot of light, wind, and weird, whatever. Weird light and wind. Yeah. He just fishes in his pocket for like four or five quarters, starts putting them in the machine. (laughs) <laughs> Those tentacles are going back and forth The yeah. light comes on It's right where he left it He uses the grappling hook He ties it around a post. I thought that was just the rope Okay. No, it was definitely the grappling hook I don't know why you have a post In the middle of a spaceship like that Like You don't need the structural support for your ceiling But no, This spaceship has a post Which is convenient 
I just assume a lot of redundancy for a spaceship when it comes to structural integrity. Yeah, it's a strut. Yeah, you want as many of those, you can get buttresses. Yeah. I would imagine that if the H.R. Geiger ships would have a lot of flying buttresses, right? Uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so. Unquestionably. So, yeah, he secures the grappling hook to that, ties himself to it so that this thing can't suck him in. And then he goes into, like, stabby-stabby mode. Oh, yeah. With his hatchet and knife. He gets right in there, and the tentacle monster, or the dragon, it does the thing where it hypnotizes him to want to come to it, and then he kind of snaps to it, probably a little bit quicker, because he's maybe more inoculated to it by now. But uh, they do they do it a couple great, um, I think, backwards film shots. To make it look like the tentacles snap around his neck. Um, and he's... Yeah, he hacks away. And if, as ineffectually as before. You know what I love is... It's cool that the tentacle monster, like, grabs the rope. And starts pulling, like, fraying the rope. It clearly understands. Right. And that's cool. Yeah. Because it makes it even more sinister. So, while he's fighting... The other ship is docking. Martin Landau grabs himself a... Oh, he tells he tells Helena to, to wait. He's like, oh, maybe, yeah. you should, maybe you should stay. Yeah. And, and, she, and she's like, nope. And she like yeah. slips into the elevator doors as they close. Yeah, basically. she just like ignores him. Yeah. Coming along. He should know better. Seriously. So they get in there just in time to see, uh, to see Captain Tony get sucked up like the rest of his crew. Yeah. I thought he was going to make it. He was doing some good stabbing, and there was a lot of blood and whatnot. And then Martin Landau like, takes a couple pot shots with the energy gun or the ray gun or whatever, sees very quickly that's not doing anything. He's really willing to get right in there with the axe. Yeah, he goes right in there with an axe, and within just a couple of whacks, takes it out. Yeah, that's the thing. He went right for the eye. Yeah, but I thought I Which thought Tony I would was doing do that too. Too, I think it's like one of those things when you like open a jar of pickles. Uh huh. You know, like Tony was doing all the work. Tony kind of loosened it up. Tony banged it against the counter a couple times. Tony found the one big rubber band <laughs> in the back of the drawer. He had it under and the hot slipped water. Slipped it over the lid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony did all that shit, and then and Martin and like, and I was like, "Yeah, I can fucking do that." That yeah. was easy. What the fuck's your problem? He's like, "Oh, sorry." already off yeah, yeah i guess i didn't i didn't even try yet yeah i'm disappointed that we didn't get the ejection of the the tony corpse yeah we only got one ejection the very first one i think we got a couple actually but we definitely didn't get his i disagree i don't think we got a couple i think oh, really? we got one there's a couple on the floor yeah they they pan across the floor of the room and you can see the corpses from i don't know years bygone or whatever They leave that command module there. Yeah, they fuck off quick. They really do. They get the hell out of there. And the voiceover, the murder she wrote of uh, Dr. Russell's voiceover is like, we don't even, since we couldn't tell that it was alive, we don't even know if it's dead. 
This thing right. defies all of our criteria, which is the thing that Captain Tony was trying to fucking tell him the whole time. Right, exactly. So she finally understands. Yeah, so they, like you say, they fuck off and we get a last scene, uh, you know, of her and her sexy orange typewriter. <laughs> yeah. I want to know what kind of typewriter that is. I, yeah, they that's can't awesome. Have, they can't have made a typewriter just for. I mean, oh, no, they I think that's a. I think that's a real typewriter. Yeah, I agree. Nathan, you can keep this or not, but there is a place that I know in Philadelphia that refurbishes typewriters, and I have long planned to get myself one of these. There, they have so many beautiful options. This summer, I'll try to bring you back a refurbished typewriter. I appreciate that, but I don't want a refurbished typewriter. You don't? No. Do you know how many typewriters I have? Besides the one that I have here under my table? Do you have it? From your house? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I've got like six typewriters. I don't need any more. Okay. Well, I'll just get one for myself then. Also, that one that's under your table, like I repaired that. You're the man. That didn't work, and now it does. Shit. But there you are that, you hear that, folks? <laughs> there are some amazingly beautiful typewriters. That's what I that, mean. They've got these. Yeah. I mean, the one the one I'm borrowing from you is also amazingly beautiful. But yeah. Um. So we get a last kind of little bit of a scene of Landau and 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 Bane going over her medical report about the incident, and this is when they talk about we're making a new history and finding a new life. Maybe that's it. Yeah. And this is then we had the complete confirmation that uh Giovanni Garkovich was so was bad. a one off character. You're so bad at that name. Garkovich. G- well you gotta do two accents because Giovanni <laughs> Garkovich. He also went by the name of Gary Hudson. Oh <laughs> I didn't I didn't see that. Yeah. Nice. When he was putting on his American accent, because his his like Eastern Bloc accent was the shit. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that he just went with it. Well, you know, I think it was probably part of that. This is the Cold War era still, and this is the future. So we're all together now. So we should have like a Russian guy or whatever. Right, like in 2010. Right. Exactly. You didn't see 2010. No, I didn't. I'm just going along with you. Okay. It's backing you up, buddy. All right. Well, let's review the episode. Almost. Uh-oh. At the very end, there's one other comment that I thought was interesting that just talks about the concept of having the moon flying through space for, for your the premise of your show. Yeah. And that's that they have to fuck off quick. And she says, we have to catch up with the moon. Right, right. So, like, the moon, they, they have no way to control it. It's going where it's going. That gives them that sort of, like, they that magical... short window of time. Yeah, but also the sort of, like, magical, like, story creation where they're, like, it takes us, you know, yeah, where it's going, and then, yeah. It's quite a factor. All right. Here we go. Hey, Nathan, what did you think about this episode of Space 1999 that we watched? Yeah, I liked it. I think I think I liked it more after talking to you about it. I feel like you were pretty enthusiastic about it. Uh-huh. You're not wrong. 
while I was watching it, I think I wasn't quite ready for some of that 70s like slowness um, oh, uh-huh. that exists in it, which I actually, I really like that, but I was a little unprepared for it. Turns out I really liked it more than I thought I was going to. Okay. I'm really interested in actually watching another episode to see if it's obvious that this is the sort of pinnacle of Space 1999. Yeah, is, this, or, is this the outlier or? Yeah, or like, are they all sort of this good? It was definitely good enough to keep watching. Like, I, I would I would watch more. Yeah, I, I agree. I um, I had no expectations except for a small part of me thought that this was going to be terrible schlock attempt at 70s sci-fi television. And it wasn't yeah. to me. Because this is science fiction before Star Wars. You know, Star Trek was canceled. Star Trek wasn't on, except in syndication. Um, I'm not even sure if uh, the um, studios were aware at this point how big the Star Trek thing was in 1975. Yeah, I don't think they knew. So this was just a continued attempt to make sci-fi television. And Although, it's very... when, when did the first movie come out? I think 79. That could have just been because of Star Wars even. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, there was a lot of astronautiness about it. Yeah. I like that uh, a lot. I like that a lot. And I like the 2001-ness about it. Yep. Besides the effects and the design, which was fucking crazy. Yeah. It's top of the line budget for a television show. Yeah, I think with the set design and the effects, the story could have been a whole lot worse and it still would have been yeah, something. That- I, I agree. I mean, I dug the writing. I thought yeah. the writing was good and I thought the actors were great and I didn't expect to have fun and enjoy it. And I really did. I really did. I don't feel like the writing is like super brilliant where like, you know, who's the total recall guy? Philip K. Dick. It's not sort of like at that level of like Philip no, K. It's, Dick or it's space adventure, but it's, what did you call him? Asmavi? <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I think I call him Asimov. Asmanoff? <laughs> Asmanoff or uh, Arthur C. Clarke, but it, they're trying but they're to shooting do for that. that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're interested in the science of it. They're interested in it being science fiction. But also the um, the psychology. Like, I think, I think all of those sci-fi writers were also really interested in exposing the psychology of, you know, the human condition or yeah. the human brain, yeah. how we react, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of fun to see that. Like, Star Trek does that sometimes, but in it, like, right, I don't know. Right, not like being super less, campy. Yeah, exactly. Campy and, like, less like, this isn't this isn't meant to be campy in any way. I don't think... I don't think the TOS people for the first two seasons intended for it to be campy, but they did a lot of silly things that were supposed to be funny intentionally. Yeah. Uh, But this seems like they're trying to do a serious space drama, basically. In the future, I would love to do another episode. I'd love to revisit it. Cool. I think it was cool. They did. They only did two seasons of this. It'd be cool to, it'd be cool to contrast it against another one. Yeah. Right on. So, Space 1999. Yeah. Why not? Just to put a bow on the review portion. Oh, I thought that was it. I uh, Yeah. <laughs> that was the bow. I know. You're editing it. You can you can you can put this what you're saying right now wherever you want. 
Well, I feel like a lot of times you ask me if I would recommend it, and I do often ask. That. A lot of times, I don't. I don't want to recommend something to somebody, <laughs> but I recommend this. I think this is visually, no matter how dumb the story is, which I don't think it's even that dumb. But I don't you, think it's dumb at all. I feel like you could you could see this as being a sort of stupid Doctor Who storyline, even if that was the case. I would go further. I would say that it's easily a, a Star Trek TOS episode. Oh, whoa. Way better. No, no, really. You know, but like they have episodes where there's some ghost from the past that's haunting a crew member. And they <laughs> Those have are to the go, worst. Oh, no, Beverly. Jesus. Don't have sex with alien, with alien ghosts. Well, I didn't even get to TNG, but I was going to say it could be a TNG like early season. I guess I, w- I guess the point I was trying to make was just that even if it was as dumb as really dumb TNG, which <laughs> can get really dumb, sure, it's still worth watching because the set dressing so. and the design, it's gorgeous, all, all of that. Yeah, yeah. If you're just gonna watch one episode of Space 1999, yeah, we might as well. I was pleasantly surprised. We're not the people to recommend which episode of Space 1999 to watch, but go ahead, watch this one. It's good enough. Yeah, I concur. Now we need to figure out what we're going to watch for the next episode of The Escape Pod. Accessing Escape Pod Data Library. Accessing. Accessing. Determination complete. 19-whatever's Soylent Green. 1973's Chuck Heston Soylent Green. This is... An old fave of mine, though I haven't seen it in a long time. It is uh, the last movie of Edward G. Robinson, who you will know from Bugs Bunny cartoons as being the gangster that goes, meh, meh. Yeah, a little too smart. Yeah, yeah. All right, French guy, where's all that doll? It's curtains for you, see? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no. No, not at all? <laughs> no. Uh, he... He he was very famous for, for yeah. that. Well, yeah, he was a famous character actor in the 30s and 40s as a as a tough huh. gangster. Um, Sounds like W. C. Fields. Does my Ever G. Robinson sound like W. C. Fields? <laughs> Shit. I was in love with a beautiful blonde once, dear. She drove me to drink. That's the one thing I'm indebted to her for. Well, eat, god damn it! Eat your vegetables, see. Well. A nightmarish, futuristic fantasy about the controlling power of big corporations and an innocent cop who stumbles onto the truth. Hasn't Charlton Heston been canceled yet? Oh, I think many, many times over. Yeah, thank God. Indeed. Do you think the computer picked this one because we're running low on supplies? Interesting question. Let's find out next time. Here in the Escape Pod. I'd like to say thank you for listening to the Escape Pod. As would I. I'd like to thank Golden Boots for the theme song. You can find us, like always, on the internet. You can email us at scifiescapepod at gmail.com, sci-fi underscore escape pod on Instagram and on Facebook. New episodes are released every other Wednesday. I think that's it. We'd love to hear from you if you actually listen to the show and have thoughts or comments or feedback or nice things to say. Yeah, if you enjoy the show, take two seconds. 
hit the five star thing. Helps new listeners find us. And the thing that helps us the most is tell a friend. We had a little explosion of listeners in Canada. Somebody was telling somebody something. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Love you guys up there. Yay, Canada. Help us. You know, Canadians designed the arm that used to be on the the space shuttle. You could use that to reach out and give somebody a USB stick with an episode of the escape pod on it. We'll see you next week, everybody. You're not you're not gonna extend that bit. Benson, Arizona, blue warm wind through your hair. My body flies the galaxies, my heart longs to be there. Benson, Arizona, the same stars in the sky. But they seem so much kinder when we watch them, you and I.